0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There were three ravens sat on a tree.
1: Down a down, hey, down a down. As black as they might be with a down. One of them said to his mates, Where shall we our breakfast take with a down, derry, 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 down, down? Hello and welcome to the Three Ravens Valentine's Day special! My name is Martin Vaux. I'm a writer, storyteller, and English romanticism obsessive. And I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts, Eleanor Connor. Happy
2: Valentine's Day. Yes,
1: happy Valentine's Day. And this
2: is fun, isn't it? A Valentine's special. Here's one for all the lovers out there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, we thought it would be a good occasion to blow the dust off the story of Valentine's Day because, sure, it's a day associated with romanticism, so big tick for me, a day for gifts and kissing and love, sometimes for disappointment, and often it's quite a lonely day too. But as I've discovered, it has a very, very strange history that's well worth digging into.
2: Plus, if you've been listening to the Three Ravens podcast for any length of time, then you know we love. like any excuse to mark an occasion. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to Valentine's Day, we make an effort, don't
1: we? Oh, we sure do. But the kinds of things we get up to on Valentine's Day... Hey, not that, dear listener. My eyes are up here. <laughs> Mine's in the gutter. In the gutter, I say. Still, in terms of giving cards and flowers and gifts, gobbling chocolate, sharing poetry, going out on nice dates, all sorts of sweet and kind acts to show we care about a special someone, well... That's all surprisingly modern. I
2: quite like to scatter petals all over the house on <laughs> Valentine's do. Day. Yep. Uh, it's my annual petal bomb, uh, which Martin, professes to be delighted by. I, I am
1: delighted by it. I mean, obviously, it <laughs> takes some time to tidy up.
2: We keep finding them for many months afterwards as well. So it's a little memory of Valentine's Day. It,
1: it is. But also the first time you did it, I was like, oh, my God, this reminds me of The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. What's happened to Eleanor? <laughs> it's the one-armed man. not quite what I intended. <laughs> (laughs) Anyway, so the idea of anonymity, the Valentine's card customs, that's also all relatively new. And although we're going to start with St. Valentine, the story of how the day even became called St. Valentine's Day... Disclaimer, dear listener. I had planned to write a story for today, but I've uncovered so much amazing history and learned so many strange things as I went that this episode is going to be chock full, and there isn't actually space enough for a story. No
2: story? No,
1: no story. The episode would have been. COVID long, I think. So there's stories in the episode for sure, but no big story, for which I apologize. It just turns out that Valentine's Day is too big a topic to cover in roughly an hour-long episode, which also contains a story. So I'm sorry about that. But I have been down many rabbit holes of research for this. It's going to be a wild journey, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. But... No story for this one.
2: Well, we'll have to get to the end and judge, won't we, when you've
1: justified stealing a story from us? Oh, goodness. Well, I'll certainly try my best still. Let's start with St. Valentine and how the heck we ended up with this day, the 14th of February, becoming a celebration of love. And this first bit, I must say, the life of St. Valentine, it's totally bizarre and, fair warning, not the most romantic really. Yeah
2: I always found it quite confusing because I remember as a teenager trying to read up about Saint Valentine to understand the whole Valentine's Day phenomenon Mm -hmm. and what I found in my family encyclopedia bore absolutely no relation to romance (laughs) although I think I'm right in saying that Saint Valentine died on February the 14th.
1: Well that's a bit of an urban myth that's come about in more recent times. Oh really? Yep and like with a lot of saints Saint Valentine is a bit of a muddy character a bit blurry around the edges we might say in fact when we go back to the very first mentions of st valentine immediately whether you have a beard or not you're gonna end up stroking the end of your chin going hmm
2: Hmm. Well, okay, tell me. Tell me, do. What do we actually know about St. Valentine? Well,
1: uh, the salient facts are these there is no mention of St. Valentine in the Catholic Martyrology of Jerome. That's the first major attempt to compile a set of Christian saints and saints' days into a kind of calendar. That one dates from the 8th century thought to perhaps come from earlier texts that no longer exist. Interesting. Also, our buddy, the Venerable Bede, the father of English history, writes extensively about Catholic attempts to overwrite pagan holidays and about Saint's Days in general in his Ecclesiastical History of the English People. And he also does not mention St Valentine or St Valentine's Day.
2: Right, so we can leap all the way up to the 8th century and say confidently, I suppose, that the Catholic Church and people in England weren't really marking a St Valentine's Feast by that point in history
1: more than that there's no evidence at all by the eighth century that people in europe really acknowledged a figure called saint valentine there is a basilica and set of catacombs in rome dating from the fourth century called the basilica di san valentino it's a ruin now but that actually has nothing to do with saint valentine rather it was built by a wealthy patron called Valentine. Bloke never did a miracle in his life.
2: Blimey. Well, the 8th century is quite late when you think about it. And that's around the time of the Lindisfarne Gospels. King Offa is digging his famous dyke along the Welsh border. I mean, (laughs) on the podcast, we deal quite a bit with the Dark Ages and Anglo-Saxon history. And the 8th century is getting very close to the Norman invasion. It
1: is, yeah. And also in the 8th century, the Vikings raid Lindisfarne, which is seen as one of the key moments in the timeline leading into the Norman invasion of ten sixty. And what's interesting relating to Valentine's Day is that back in the 5th century, Pope Galatius did decree February 14th as a feast day. But he allocated it as dedicated to St. George and not St. Valentine. Whoa, whoa, whoa,
2: whoa. So St. George's Day used to be on Valentine's Day. Before
1: Valentine's Day was Valentine's Day. (laughs) And by the time Bede is writing, St. George's Day was still February 14th. It only moved in 1415, which was during the reign of Henry V. Oh,
2: my head. (laughs) Honestly, all the mucking about with the calendar that happens over the centuries just scrambles my brain. (laughs) So... No St. Valentine in the 8th century, in which case, when did he actually pop up? Well,
1: there are, in fact... 12 different St. Valentines. (laughs) What? Yep. There's a full dozen, including a Pope. Um, There's German ones, French ones, an Egyptian one, several Italian ones. They range from being martyred in the 3rd century up to the ninth century. (laughs) The name Valentine was very popular. It means literally brave or strong. It's the same root word from which we get the word valour, for example. And the guy who was eventually kind of celeste taped onto the 14th of February much later, was thought to be either a priest of Rome or the former Bishop of Terni in central Italy. These were two very different men both said to have lived in the third century. Wait,
2: so hold on. St. Valentine could be two different people.
1: Oh, yeah. It's even more complicated than that. But what's important is that for the church, there's only one story ascribed to both of these two men.
2: <laughs> oh, two men, one life story. Got it. This is all so
1: incredibly plausible. Yes, well, what can I say? Uh God works in mysterious ways. Yeah.
2: Anyway, (laughs) what is the life story of this definitely genuine singular person, St. Valentine? Okay. So
1: it is said that Valentine was a Christian priest during the times of the Roman Empire. As we know, not a healthy thing to be. No. And so the story goes. He was arrested for evangelising by a judge called Asterius. Asterius was very sceptical about Valentine's claims about the powers of this new Christian God, especially miracles of healing. So Asterius is said to have brought his blind daughter to Valentine, who he was keeping in prison. Valentine then prayed and put his hands onto the blind eyes of Asterius's daughter, and boom, lo and behold, the girl could suddenly see. Nice
2: work, valentine loving what you're doing all the optometrists in ancient rome will soon be out of business keep it up
1: (laughs) so asterius is then baptized by valentine all the christians asterius has in prison are freed and the whole gang daughter included become evangelists their works and ways are then said to have attracted the attentions of the roman emperor claudius ii and it said he re-arrests valentine valentine then tries to pull a similar trick on claudius to the one he He's pulled on Asterius, but it doesn't work. Claudius II basically says, looky here, old chum. I'm not converting to your new heathen faith. And either you renounce Christianity or I'm going to have my guards take you out in front of Rome's Flaminian gate. And we're going to beat you with clubs and chop your head off.
2: To which Valentine, presumably in the way of all these martyrs, yep. weighed up his options and said, you know what, Claudius? I think I'd like to be beaten with clubs and beheaded, please. (laughs)
1: Well, exactly that. And that's how St. Valentine of St. Valentine's Day was supposedly martyred. His miracle was curing Asterius' daughter's sight. He never had a lover, never had children, had nothing whatsoever to do with love, as far as we can tell. And the dates of his life are completely speculative. Like I say, he's supposed to have lived and died in the third century, but... One big problem with the official narrative is that Claudius II was actually away on campaign in Europe through the whole period Valentine was supposed to have been active as an evangelist. So do feel free, if you like, to continue to gently stroke the end of your chin and go... Hmm.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I see what you mean. Not wholly convincing. But
1: there are lots of
2: sets of his relics. I bet there are. <laughs> Go on then. Where are these various bits of St. Valentine today? I imagine he's all over the place, what with his having two bodies but one life story. At least
1: two bodies. Don't forget, there are a dozen St. Valentines <laughs> and nobody really kept track of his bits. But the ones that I'm about to list are all supposed to be pieces of the one true valentine this is so silly so one lot of relics is kept at the basilica de santa proseda in rome where they've been housed since the 13th century another lot is kept at the basilica de santa maria in Cosmodin, also in rome that has his skull adorned with a crown of flowers bits of him including a vial of his blood are said to have been at Whitefriar street carmelite church in dublin since 1835 plus there's said to be other bits of him in churches and cathedrals in slovakia poland france germany malta scotland greece and the Czech Republic.
2: Wow, so St. Valentine has really travelled since that beheading. Oh, yeah. oh, good for him. A lot of people slow down as they get older, but not St. Valentine. No, but
1: not St. Valentine. And I'm sorry that this has so far been completely unromantic, because this is meant to be a Valentine's Day special. But, alas, I'm not done with the St. Valentine madness yet.
2: Well, it's important, because people around the world are spending today sending Valentine's Day cards and showing their affections to one another. But when they're asking people to be their valentine, <laughs> they've probably never considered that, in a way, they could be asking their poor, unsuspecting, significant other to be dragged outside and beaten with clubs, all before a little bit of light
1: decapitation. <laughs> that is very true. In fact, if someone has asked you to be their valentine today, it might be worth double-checking exactly what they mean. Just, you know, maybe ask them to clarify their intentions. It come as a horrible surprise <laughs> if
2: you accepted, and then <laughs> cards appeared. No, Eustace, no. i expected you to run me a bubble bath and take me out for pasta i didn't agree to martyrdom Eustace. no it's been a terrible mistake <laughs> so let's try approaching this a different way okay we know that in the 8th century saint valentine's day was not associated with saint valentine whichever version yes and definitely wasn't associated with love mm-hmm. can we say then with any confidence when Valentine's Day was actually ascribed to the 14th of February. And was that also the same time that the day was associated with getting all lovey-dovey? OK,
1: the lovey-dovey part is the easiest of those two mysteries to solve, but it's still pretty weird. And we can trace it in the public consciousness directly and explicitly to Geoffrey Chaucer. What? Yep. The Canterbury Tales Geoffrey Chaucer? Yep. What does Chaucer have to do with it? Well, at some point in the 14th century, between 1374 and 1382, Geoffrey Chaucer wrote a poem called The Parliament of Fowls, also known as The Parliament of Birds. I've
2: read this poem. It's very strange. It
1: is. Chaucer was said to have been inspired to write it by a dream. There was quite a lot of dream poetry being written mm, around this yeah. time.
2: Chaucer's uh, in- sources of inspiration are highly suspect. Indeed they inspired are. Inspired by a dream, found it in a cupboard. Yeah, quite <laughs> yeah. right.
1: So the original manuscripts for the Parliament of Fowls are lost. But the basic idea of the poem is that you have a narrator who falls asleep on the night of 14th of February. He passes through the gates of Venus in his dream and ends up at a kind of court which is overseen by Mother Nature as judge.
2: Yeah, and at this court you have all these birds who have been assembled to decide who they should love. Mm -hmm. So nature's basically pairing the birds off with different male birds making slightly comical cases as to why a given female bird should become their lover.
1: Yeah, so it's kind of like a 14th century blind date only for birds. (laughs) And George also mentions Valentine's Day as 14th of February several times in the poem. The main thrust of the poem is about how a female eagle, or a four male, chooses not to choose a lover, and how nature rationalizes that choice, making the judgment that because all creatures have free will, one of the things they can always choose is not to love.
2: Yeah, it all builds to this big
1: anti-climax. It does, and after that, the narrator wakes up from his dream and goes on to consider whether love is something we should be able to choose, or can choose because of fate, and it's all kind of a a bit philosophical in the end. Yeah,
2: I remember, it's quite an abstract poem in some ways, despite it also being a bit funny, with Mm. all these birds chatting about why they're so great and would make good bird husbands and so on. (laughs) And so, how had February the 14th become Valentine's Day for Chaucer? Because if the church doesn't move St. George's Day off that spot until 1415 and Chaucer's writing his poem decades before, what's going on? Well,
1: okay, I've literally been back through several academic papers to study this. I have read so much about the various St. Valentines and the theories as to why Chaucer sets his poem on the 14th of February because the truth is nobody really knows. Like, literally, nobody can say for sure. Whoa. Yeah. We do know that the Catholic Church had not officially sent out decrees that Valentine's Day was the 14th of February in Chaucer's lifetime but in France a totally different Saint Valentine had been recognised and his Saint's Day had been allocated locally to the 14th of February during the Avignon papacy which we spoke about in our Something Wicked Alice Kittler episode. If you remember this was a strange period where the popes are not based in Rome but at Avignon instead and the Valentine the French liked wasn't a priest at all. This is arcane isn't it? It's insane. Because there was a character in the Charlemagne romance cycle known as the Matter of France called Valentine. This is a collection of poems and legends and songs written down about 1215 and in these stories, Valentine is a knight, a bit like Lancelot from The Matter of Britain. In The Matter of France, Valentine engages in fantastic rescues, battles, love affairs, magic. He's of noble birth and becomes a knight, goes on quests, only later in his life, he kills his father by mistake. For having done this, he gives up all earthly goods, including the love of his wife, the Lady Clarimonde, and becomes a hermit.
0: So,
2: hold on. Do the Avignon Popes make this mythical hero a saint?
1: They do. And very much like St George, who was also a brave and questing knight, they give this new French St Valentine the 14th of February as his Saint's Day locally within France. And we have letters from a bishop of the time who claims to have the head of Valentine, which is said to have performed several miracles over the years, including ridding crops of hordes of mice, ending a drought and a plague, and curing people of blindness, deafness, muteness. I mean, it really is a most wonderful magic head. Well, it
2: sounds like it. I
1: mean, to be fair, there was a St. Valentine's head in England as well at this time. One of the 12. So this one had originally been owned by Queen Emma. Well, I mean, originally, presumably it was owned by a man, maybe a St. Valentine. But Queen Emma was the person who owned it. She was the wife of Ethelred the Unready, if you remember. Mm. And she died in 1052. That one was also known to perform healing miracles and was kept at Winchester Cathedral until, alas, it was destroyed during the dissolution of the monasteries. Boo,
2: Henry VIII. Yeah, Boo. boo, boo,
1: hiss, boo, spit. Anyway, so Chaucer dies in the year 1400, and in 1403, the Catholic Church officially designates February 14th as Valentine's Day across every Catholic nation. But what has happened in between is, somehow, Chaucer has picked up this notion of Valentine's Day taking place on the 14th of February, probably from French associates and diplomats.
2: Well, we know that Chaucer was a diplomat in France on and off
1: across his life. We do. And also that he writes his early poetry in a French style, copying the big hit of the day, The Romance of the Rose. And he was also a big fan of Ovid. Mm. So to bring all this together, in the Parliament of Fowls, it seems, Chaucer conflated this new local French saint with spring traditions written about by Ovid in his fasti of the pairing off of lovers in nature, so animals and people during spring, at an ancient festival called Anna Perenna, the festival of the old and young year. So he writes about this pairing off process happening for birds on St. Valentine's Day.
2: It's so tortured and so strange. Yep. I love it. Oh,
1: good. Well, believe me, I know how strange it is because what I've learned... Through all of this headache-inducing reading, I mean, I had to make notes here, Eleanor. I made a timeline. Anyway, the key point is this: Chaucer's Parliament of Fowls is literally the first Valentine poem. It originated the genre, and before it, there is literally no association between Valentine's Day or Saint Valentine and love. And Chaucer was friends with a number of other poets, including Granson, Gower, Clavvo, and Lydgate, and all of these men followed Chaucer's lead and wrote a series of love poems about birds and love on Valentine's Day.
2: I just love Chaucer. He's yeah. one of my two favourite Jeffreys, and yeah. i Geoffrey of Monmouth. Of course, yeah. I mean, what is it about that name? There's such forerunners. I love it. <laughs> Chaucer literally started a trend here. He
1: did. He did. And Chaucer himself wrote a sequel, The Parliament of Mars, because it appears he originally thought to call the Parliament of Fowls the Parliament of Venus. But still, you get these poems and collections of poems called, like, The Book of Cupid, or The Cuckoo and the Nightingale, which is by Vaux, and A Valentine to Her that it Excelleth All by Lydgate, which is about the narrator's inability to find a lover on Valentine's Day, so he chooses to love the Virgin Mary instead. It's her that excelleth all in the poem's title. And all these poems, they're hits! People love them!
2: So, to get this straight, Geoffrey Chaucer just kind of mangles a load of ideas together for his poem, the first ever Valentine's Day poem. Yep. Then other people copy him. And from that, Valentine's Day becomes this day associated with love. That's exactly
1: what happens. And very quickly, a number of French court poets, including notably Charles Orleans. Duke of Valois, takes up this idea, and in the court of the French king, Charles VI, a.k.a. Charles the Beloved, a.k.a. also Charles the Mad in his later years, they start to do this cool thing on Valentine's Day during the 1380s and 1390s, which is poets from around the court anonymously write love poems these all then go into a central pot or bowl, then ladies of the court take turns to draw a poem, which is then read, and it's all very cute and giggly and maybe leads on to love and romance.
2: That's so nice. I think we should have a Valentine's party where we do that. That's a
1: good idea. <laughs> so that's
2: basically the first kind of Valentine's Day custom yes. then. Anonymous love poetry picked, well, <laughs> kind of by a lottery, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, And that dates from the late 14th century. It
1: does. And this becomes such a popular new trend that it spreads throughout out the courts of England and Europe The church then officially transfers the feast day of St. Valentine to February 14th in 1403. And we then get this tradition of what's known as the Lottery of Lovers, written about during a number of 15th century love poems.
2: Chaucer, look what you did. (laughs) You changed history, old buddy. He
1: really did. It is absolutely the case that without Chaucer, we would not celebrate Valentine's Day as a romantic occasion. We can trace it all back to him and his really odd bird poem. Fascinating. (laughs) And dear listener, this is not what you'll read on Wikipedia or on the internet more generally because loads and loads and loads of nonsense has developed over the years. But I can recommend one academic paper out of the ton I've read on this topic. Check out Jack Oruk. that's O-R-U-C-H, his amazing St. Valentine, Chaucer, and Spring in February. It's wildly interesting.
2: Okay, so we have this poetic lottery developing in the late 14th, early 15th century. Yes. What happens next?
1: Well, it's worth saying that all this is happening against the backdrop of the Hundred Years' War. And it's said that in 1415... That very same Duke of Valois sent the first Valentine's card to his wife, who was in prison in the Tower of London. We know that after that, it becomes more common for poets to be commissioned by the aristocracy to write similar Valentine's card love poems to be sent to potential lovers. And this was not a widespread phenomenon.
2: No, I can't imagine the average person on the street or peasant in the village was (laughs) composing love poetry. They almost certainly couldn't read. And come February, would probably be huddled around a fire gnawing on a frostbitten teddy. Well, indeed.
1: We do know, though, that between the 14th and 15th centuries, Valentine's Day celebrations kind of waned. This was, is worth saying, a rough old period in English history, bouncing from the Hundred Years' War into the Wars of the Roses. But the person who really enshrined Valentine's Day in the English consciousness was actually... Henry VIII.
2: Was it now? A a rare case of Henry VIII doing something good. Yeah,
1: perhaps the exception that makes the rule. But in 1537, Henry VIII signed a royal charter making Valentine's Day a national holiday. And that fits within Henry's push to revive particularly older chivalric traditions, such as, for example, the Order of the Garter, which he made a big fuss about, and poetry, and art, and music. His reign is, of course, acknowledged as the start of the English Renaissance, the English Return, and Valentine's Day falls under that set of sweeping cultural reforms. And
2: so was Valentine's Day much the same in the 16th century after this revival as it had been, what, a century or more before? It
1: wasn't, as I'm sure you can imagine. And I'll tell you all about how it changed, why it changed, and get into the development of the key symbols of Valentine's Day, such as the heart, the mass production of Valentine's cards, flowers. We're going to explore Tudor concepts of Valentine's Day and how they were linked to ancient Greek mythology. So all that's coming right after this.
0: Martin, we're
2: well on our way through the development of Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. We've got as far as Henry VIII, and you said things changed in the Tudor court. How did they change and why?
1: Well, a new wave of traditions came in under the Tudors, some linked to divination as per. A feast day always justified a bit of divination. Well, that's fun. So what kind of things did people do? So a common one was for a woman to place a bay leaf beneath her pillow on Valentine's Eve, reciting, St. Valentine, be kind to me. This night may I, my true love, see. Obviously spelled in an insane way. Obviously. But uh, she was supposed to then dream of her lover. Fits into a long tradition of women putting things under their pillows and then dreaming of their lovers, mm. doesn't <laughs> it? But perhaps the more important one was again associated with birds oh yeah yeah so it was said that to know the occupation of a future husband on valentine's day a young woman should look to the skies and see which bird she saw if she saw a blackbird, it was said she would marry a clergyman a crow then she would marry a soldier a robin meant she would marry a sailor a goldfinch meant that she would marry a rich man a blue tit predicted a happy man a crossbill or orange finch indicated an argumentative man, a dove signalled a good or pure man, and if she saw a woodpecker or a cuckoo, it said she would never marry.
2: I know there's no raven on that list. (laughs) I'm guessing we fall somewhere between a blackbird and a crow, so maybe some kind of warrior priest.
1: Yeah, maybe a wizard. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that that tracks. (laughs) But aside from the divination side of things, the Tudor era, more importantly, saw it start to be believed that whichever eligible person of the opposite sex you saw first on Valentine's Day, was to be your lover.
2: Well, that sounds fun. I presume this led to lots of people wearing masks or otherwise covering their eyes, Mm -hmm. hiding, avoiding people, all up until the person they actually
1: wanted to see was there to be seen. Yep. And people, of course, had dances and feasts in evenings, performances of music and poetry. But a lot of this was very consciously linked to ancient Greek or classical concepts. It's important to remember that part of the Reformation project was about pulling Catholicism out at the root in England. So a lot of what was seen as popery by Henry VIII and his court had to be gone. Those things were destroyed or banned. And he sought to revive customs that he thought of as English, but untainted by Rome, many of which were rooted in life from around the time of Christ As the Tudor's it.
2: Yes. Now, within that, you get a whole load of misunderstandings and mistranslations, (laughs) lots of badly interpreted beliefs. But really, if we cut through the facade, it was often just a slightly veiled justification for Henry VIII to do whatever he
1: wanted. It was, and we can dress it up. But he and his courtiers kind of made it up as they went along, didn't they? But when it comes to Valentine's Day, this idea of blind love specifically came from mythologies around Cupid, a.k.a. Eros, the personification of Desire, who is the child of Venus, Aphrodite and Ares or Mars, the gods of love and war in the Greco-Roman canon. Yes,
2: there's a famous ancient Greek myth involving Eros or Cupid, uh, namely Cupid
1: and Psyche. Indeed, there is. The central thrust of that one is that Cupid or Eros is tasked by Venus Aphrodite with shooting arrows from his quiver to make people fall in love with the first person they see after they've been shot. With his arrow. And one day there's this beautiful princess born, Psyche, who is so pretty and so virtuous that as she grows up, all of civilized humanity begins to say she's even more lovely than venus aphrodite
2: never good to make a god jealous
1: (laughs) yep so to get her revenge venus aphrodite sends cupid to shoot an arrow at psyche at just the right moment to ensure that she falls in love with something hideous a donkey an idiot something to cause her maximum embarrassment But when Cupid approaches and seeks to notch his arrow, he sees how beautiful Psyche is and slips, pricking himself with his own arrow and falling deeply in love with Psyche. What a
2: pickle. Mm -hmm. And if I remember rightly, this basically makes Cupid not fire any arrows in or around Psyche, meaning she can't fall in love with anyone. Yeah,
1: pretty much. She can't fall in love with anyone. Nobody can fall in love with her. And her father, the king, takes her to see the oracle to ask for advice. The oracle says, whoa, the prophecies say your child is going to be inhuman, Psyche. Some kind of half-human monster, by my guess. You're in for trouble. Psyche, what a
2: difficult time. (laughs) no one loves her and the oracle says she's going to give birth to some sort of chimera (laughs) what a rough ride (laughs) yeah
1: it's all so difficult in fact that she decides there's nothing for it she goes up to a clifftop and jumps off attempting to commit suicide but Zephyr the west wind catches her and sets her down on a distant remote island because Zephyr is Cupid's friend they know each other from all of Cupid's flying about and making people fall in love And Zephyr knows full well how head over heels Cupid is for Psyche. So step one, she's not dead. Yep, but... Cupid knows that if Psyche is to really fall in love with him, not in a manner involving firing arrows, but genuine, full-on, proper love, she needs to not be terrified of his godly shape or seduced by it. So this involves a long, drawn-out period of courtship where Cupid appears at this beautiful palace he's built just for Psyche, but he only comes at night, only on those nights of pitch darkness, and the two begin to get to know one another and fall in love, and over time they become lovers, consummating their desire in a manner most glorious.
2: And it all goes wrong, doesn't it? It
1: does, because Psyche cannot resist her curiosity. So she gets an oil lamp, lights it, and goes into the bedchamber she's been sharing with her mysterious lover. And there is Cupid, a flipping deity, the most beautiful man she has ever seen. And she panics. She goes a bit crazy because she's just seen a god in divine form. And she drops the oil lamp onto the bed. This burns Cupid while he sleeps. Cupid then wakes on fire, scorching, feeling betrayed and flies off back to Olympus, scarred forever.
2: Rough stuff for Psyche, I must say, because you would look, wouldn't you? You
1: just have to look. Oh, I think I'd have to look. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there, as Psyche, having gone temporarily mad from seeing Cupid, wakes up months later in the middle of the wilderness, where she's found by Pan, the primal nature god and god of wildness. And from there, she goes on a bit of a jungle book-style adventure. She spends time with Pan, learning his ways. Then he introduces her to Ceres, god of fertility. She learns her ways. Then she meets Juno, the mother goddess, learns her ways. And then Psyche... Psyche realises that while all this has been fun, the person or god she really needs to meet is Venus Aphrodite, the mother of Cupid. Uh oh the
2: mother-in-law.
1: Yep, and by this time, it has become very evident that Psyche is heavily pregnant with Cupid's child, which only makes Venus Aphrodite all the more furious. So... To show her worthiness to be with her son, who's still healing from his terrible burns and not informed that Psyche has come to find him, Venus Aphrodite sets Psyche a series of quests.
2: What a ratbag she is. <laughs> I mean, I do think this in this myth. Come on, Venus Aphrodite, let the woman get what she wants yeah. and let your son get what he wants. They're in love. Well,
1: Venus Aphrodite isn't having it. So variously, Psyche is tasked with a lot of annoying things to do. Firstly, Venus Aphrodite tosses out a mountain of grain, all different types, and Psyche is tasked with sorting it all into matching piles across a single night. This she manages because all the ants nearby take pity on Psyche and help her do it. Good work, ants. Yeah, good work, ants. Then Psyche is tasked with gathering the golden wool from the flock of Helios, the sun god. This she manages not because she goes and steals it, which she knows would get her scorched to death by the sun but rather the fish and reeds of the river show her that the wool from the sheep blows into the reed beds so she gathers that and boom that's task two Complete
2: Mythical figure of lateral thinking, yeah. Psyche. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Lastly, Venus Aphrodite then tasks Psyche with venturing into the underworld and bringing back the secrets of Persephone's beauty.
2: Persephone or Persephone, no, being the daughter of Ceres, the goddess of fertility and the harvest, who you mentioned a moment ago. Yeah. That same Persephone who's abducted by Hades or Pluto and forced to spend half the year with him in the underworld and half the year above ground with her mother, mm-hmm. which is what in classical belief triggers the changes in the
1: seasons. Exactly right. And there's shenanigans. Psyche has to navigate by Cerberus and pay Charon the ferryman. But hey, she manages it and in the end is given this box of the secret of Persephone's beauty. She begins the return journey back to Venus Aphrodite, but just thinks, I'm curious. I'm going to have a little peek in this Don't do it, Psyche! (laughs) No, she does it. And inside the box is Stygian sleep, the blackest sleep or sleep of the dead. And Psyche falls into a sleep from which she cannot hope to wake. Oh my
2: goodness, what a labor! Yeah,
1: people think Hercules had it bad. Anyway, by now, Cupid has healed up. He escapes his mother's clutches, explains to Zeus look, Zeus, my guy. I'm in love with a mortal woman. She's scarred me, but I can't help it. I need to be with her forever. Please, please help. I'll scour the world to find her. But I want her to be able to see the whole me and to see the whole me and not go crazy. And for that, I need the drink of Ambrosia. Ah, ooh, ah, it's Ambrosia, the drink (laughs) of the gods.
2: I always imagine it, uh, Okay, hear me out, as a kind of lychee and passion fruit sorbet cocktail, maybe with a twisted black pepper, squirt of lime, (laughs) and some dark chocolate and strawberries on the side. Very nice. You see, it sounds godly, doesn't it? Yeah, that
1: does sound godly. Well, anyway, Zeus assents on the condition that any time he wants a human woman to fall in love with him, then Cupid will help out with a sneaky arrow. Cupid alas agrees creating all sorts of hideous consequences for the future. Uh,
2: see leader and the swan, etc. <laughs>
1: Indeed, Danae and in the golden shower, Callisto, Antiope on and on. Anyway, after that, Cupid scours the world, but he can't find Psyche. He concludes she must be dead. So, he ventures into the underworld and eventually does find her. He rescues Psyche gives her the ambrosia, which turns Psyche into a god. The pair then fall madly in love all over again. Venus Aphrodite blesses their union, because, let's be honest, they've been through the ringer. I'll say. Then they get married, and Psyche does give birth to a half-human creature, their demigod daughter Volupta, from which we get the word Voluptuous. She's also known as Hedone, from which we get the word Hedonism. Either way, her name basically means pleasure or delight, and everybody's happy after that. Hoorah, pip, pip, etc., etc. All
2: aside from leader Callisto, <laughs> Juno, you know, loads of other women. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's an awesome myth and one of those ones that maybe doesn't get enough time in the sun, although we see retellings of it in folktales like East of the Sun and West of the Moon, yeah. which is basically the exact same story. Sure. And variations of that with uh, the woman in the dark. I mean, Beauty and the Beast kind of comes from Cupid and Psyche.
1: It does do similar things, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, we sort of see the These these tropes are popping up again and again. Uh, But, you know, at the time, we've actually got a female protagonist, which is quite unusual for a classical fairy tale, I think.
1: Oh, definitely. I also think that one of the reasons perhaps we don't see the Cupid and Psyche story specifically is because there are parts of it where people are naked, saucy things happen in the dark. Absolutely. And, you know, people these days are a bit prudish about that kind of stuff, unlike the (laughs) ancient Greeks or the Romans. Either way, though, this idea of blind love and Cupid comes roaring back in the Tudor court and Valentine's Day develops this big focus on blind love and anonymity.
2: Around the same time, where the heart starts to become this ubiquitous symbol of love?
1: Well, kind of. The heart was a symbol of sacrifice beforehand. So, if you look back at early medieval art, you do see examples of the heart in painting and sculpture as something that pilgrims offer to God. So, people thought the heart actually looked like a pine cone in the past. So, there's quite a lot of pictures and sculptures of people offering their pine cone hearts. The god. And this developed in the 14th century in particular into the sacred heart. The
2: sacred heart being the symbol or icon of Jesus's heart, normally pierced by the spear of Longinus, who was said to have stabbed him on the cross.
1: Exactly right. And so, During the English Renaissance in particular, unlike in the German court or the French court, where the likes of Martin Luther were still using the sacred heart in their iconography in the 1530s, it started to become fashionable in England for people to give heart icons to their lovers in the same way that pilgrims or saints were thought to have given their hearts to God. So the idea was that you were saying, here is my heart, here is all that I am, my entire life and i give it to you that's so interesting and so sweet really it is interesting and especially so because the piercing of the sacred heart by the spear of longinus then became mutated and blended with the arrows of eros and you get this new icon the heart with the arrow through it and that one spreads like wildfire through england under henry viii dies back a bit under Mary I, with the return of Catholic iconography. Then it rallies again during the reign of Elizabeth I.
2: And then, of course, we get Shakespeare and other writers like Christopher Marlowe and Ben Jonson, who are all about the use of classical mythology in poetry and drama, mm. and who all write about Valentine's Day and Cupid. And by then, it's pretty much part of the national character. It is.
1: And to some extent, it spreads to the rest of Europe too. Although we have the Europeans to thank for the closer association between love and flowers and their connection to Valentine's Day.
2: It's interesting because the Tudor rose is very much seen as an explicitly English symbol, well,
1: isn't it? Oh yeah, the Tudor rose clearly is. And the red rose is the English national icon, the flower of England. But the very term the Wars of the Roses was applied retrospectively to what we call the Wars of the Roses. It wasn't called that at the time. And the term only arose during the 18th century. The rose was on the heraldry of the houses of York and Lancaster though. And it had been around a bit longer than that of
2: course i mean you mentioned the french Raymond de la rose before there's a close association between the rose and chivalric love poetry isn't there going back a long long time i mean the
1: explicit link between roses and love goes way back to the virgin mary mm. in european art she was represented as a red rose in early catholic painting and this link between femininity and flowers was strong for a long time, and between femininity and the rose in particular.
2: Yeah, and not just in um, Catholic art as well. In poetry and song, a yes. medieval carol, there is no rose of such virtue, mm-hmm. um, which refers to Mary. Um. And when you say femininity, well, let's not beat about the bush, a <laughs> rose bush or otherwise. Okay. <laughs> the link between womanhood and flowers is due in part to the visual appearance of flower petals on the head of a flower flower and female genitalia.
1: It is indeed. And so when you get all these chivalric poems and songs from the 12th to 14th centuries about knights being rewarded by a lady with her rose or her flower, the subtext of all that is very much that the brave knight with his somewhat suggestive sword is then being rewarded with a good lady's somewhat suggestive flower Mm, swords (laughs) and
2: flowers very subtle chivalric poets (laughs) but we see through your saucy games we
1: do and recognize them in future works but so in french poetry in particular like the romance of the rose we get this idea of the rose or flower symbolizing femininity this is adopted by many european houses there's an excellent picture from 1500 from a french book called The Little Book of Love, showing the author putting his pinecone heart into his mistress's flower. I'll pop that one on social media. Hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but then you get, in Tudor court poetry in particular, this idea of the English rose.
2: Ah, yes, the English rose, the ever-desirable makeup look, (laughs) look.
1: Pretty young maiden, basically. (laughs) Indeed, yeah. The English rose in Tudor court poems is almost always a woman who the poet is attempting to seduce. There's loads of this about before Shakespeare, but by the time of of early modern drama, the link is pretty explicit. Also tied up with the Tudor rose, this combination of the white rose of York and the red rose of Lancaster. So in the English mindset, you then get a powerful combination of ideas. The rose is a symbol of holiness and a symbol of femininity and a symbol of national identity giving a rose or describing a woman as a rose in England then becomes a supercharged gesture and the link between Valentine's Day and love is then combined with this symbol and the symbol of the heart as representing sacrifice and devotion and love as a holy thing.
2: But it's even more complicated than that isn't it? Because if your heart is like the heart of Jesus and you give it to a woman who is a rose-like holy maid and Saint Valentine is a religious character Valentine's Day then Becomes this spiritual and physical symbolic day, all wrapped up in English national identity.
1: Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. And it is absolutely correct and fair to say that English concepts of Valentine's Day were the forerunners to other national celebrations. People from other countries actually thought we were pretty weird at the time. we are. (laughs) Yes, that's true. But it became common during the 16th century to give gifts on Valentine's Day, particularly gloves, which were a high value item. And the love lottery also came back, but in a different form. Yes,
2: you wrote about this in the Three Ravens newsletter for this month. The tradition was that all the eligible men would write their names onto a piece of paper and put them into one bucket or bowl. Mm -hmm. And then the eligible women would do the same, putting their names in a different bowl. And then people would draw names and wear those names pinned to their chests. Yes,
1: that's right. This was seen as a bit of fun. But if you and your female counterpart drew one another's names, well, this was supposed to be a signal of a true love match. Cool. I
2: mean... Is that more likely to yield you a happy result than Tinder? (laughs) Difficult to say, but it it would certainly be powerful at a party in the village hall or in a ballroom to have that happen. You can imagine it being quite magical for people if it did. Oh,
1: absolutely. But it's also a great icebreaker to get people mixing and dancing, isn't it? For sure. And in terms of all this being quite specifically English, Valentine's Day is, of course, not celebrated everywhere. But the English Renaissance is the epicentre of this change from Chaucer through to Shakespeare. And we have some funny writing from French and Spanish diplomats about these rituals and writing by people like Samuel Pepys saying, for example, that he just hid on one Valentine's Day because he knew a woman was looking for him to make him the first person that she saw and he didn't want the trouble.
2: Pepys, you cheese-burying wild man. What a funny bloke, honestly. It is
1: worth saying that. After the English Civil War, Valentine's Day does, again, change a bit.
2: I mean, that's not perhaps surprising because, as discussed on previous episodes, a lot of English traditions do get stamped out by the Puritans. Mm -hmm. But surely it does survive in some forms.
1: Oh, it does. But as we move into the Enlightenment, it's much more out of fashion to engage in rustic-style Feasts and celebrations. It's a bit like Christmas from our Christmas special episode, or May Day in some senses, because the Puritans made it so difficult to celebrate these events on a grand scale as whole communities they moved into private spheres and places and are much more about the household and specific social circles rather than the village or the town.
2: And what does this mean for people celebrating Valentine's Day, practically speaking? Well,
1: people continue to write letters. They do this anonymously for the first time, including little mottos and drawings, sometimes very beautiful, hand-painted letters that revealed more and more as they were unfolded, if you can imagine that. Um, St Valentine, across the... Sticks became a thing around this time, but in the 18th century, it's all a bit more about subterfuge and takes on this cryptic bent. Then you move into romanticism and things go absolutely bananas.
2: Yeah, I mean, it seems like there should be more romantic poems about Valentine's Day itself, really. And, well, you'd know more about it than me. But I can't think of a single famous Valentine's Day poem from one of those major romantic writers. Well,
1: no, you wouldn't. Because by the time they're writing, Valentine's Day has become a bit embarrassing. You know, when I'm talking about mottos, it's things like, The rose is red, the violet blue, Carnation sweet, and so are you.
2: (laughs) Yeah, meanwhile,
1: William Blake is writing The Sick Rose, all about (laughs) prostitution and venereal disease. Yeah, exactly. So this is really emblematic. In 1797, the same year Wordsworth and Coleridge are working on the lyrical ballads, the big starting gun bang that kicks off English romanticism, a Derby publisher, Richardson's, released The Young Man's Valentine Writer, which is a compendium of sentimental verse intended to be used for any young lover unable to compose his own.
2: Oh, how tragic.
1: Meanwhile, you have a kind of counter-revolution in English Romantic poetry, the likes of Blake or William Wordsworth and Lord Byron, Shelley... Keats, they were all about these exhibitions of sincere emotion. Their poetry was intended to be true to express what was in the soul to a certain extent. Although Byron was an outlier there. He believed no poetry could express the truth and that the whole art form was affectation. But still, Valentine's mottos and letters were all seen as a bit twee, a bit cheap. Whereas the big beast romantic poets were far too, I don't know, I guess you'd say Like self-consciously authentic for that sort of thing.
2: I like that idea. Self-consciously authentic. And so as we move through the end of the 18th century into the 19th century, is that when we get the development of the Valentine's card as we'd recognise it?
1: It is. So poetry becomes this huge craze. You get the birth of the celebrity poets, writing these long epic screeds and these are loved by many people but on ground level people are getting simpler and simpler in their gestures. A lot of people started reading poetry in almanacs where just the best lines were pulled out of poems so you didn't have to read the whole thing you just got a key couplet or something like that. Yeah
2: that whole trend was so infuriating and it Killed off poetry in a way, didn't it? Well,
1: it certainly helped kill off long-form poetry increasingly as the century went on. But this idea of nuggets of sentiment, that kind of thing, it became more and more popular. By the 1830s, on Valentine's Day in England... 200,000 more letters than usual were delivered through the two-penny post. Whoa. Yep. And along with industrialization came commercially printed Valentine's cards. And these became increasingly intricate and artistic as the years went on.
2: I'm imagining people started to apply lace and things like that. <laughs> the Victorians loved a bit of lace, didn't they?
1: Yeah, they did. Again, I'll put pictures of examples on social media. And the tradition spread to America, where in 1840, a woman called Esther Allen Howland became the first American producer of Valentine's cards. You then move into this mass commercialization period of cards showing rosy-cheeked cupids. You get comic Valentine's, so satirical cards, kind of mocking the occasion, plus telegrams sent from Cupid. <laughs> Yeah, the the evidence of all this is quite cute. But by the mid-19th century, Valentine's Day has become big business. Folded into the mix, you then get the introduction of mass-scale chocolate manufacturing. Yes,
2: one of the best bits of Valentine's Day,
1: chocolate. (laughs) Well, before the 19th century, chocolate wasn't really sold in a solid form. People went to chocolate houses to drink chocolate, more often cold than hot. So through the Regency, you don't have chocolate in the form we'd recognise it. It's more like cocoa. Which is
2: fine, but... Not very valentines Day.
1: No, it isn't until the mid-19th century that the Quaker company Fry & Sons invented the chocolate bar. They were based in Bristol. And their debut product, Fry's Chocolate Cream Bar, was then copied by fellow Quakers John and Benjamin Cadbury, who launched Cadbury's Milk Chocolate. And the first heart-shaped Valentine's chocolate box was a Cadbury's product released in in 1868.
2: They changed the world, those men. (laughs) Heart-shaped boxes of chocolates became forevermore one of the main ingredients of a solid romantic gesture.
1: Oh, absolutely. And and by that point, you basically have all the key constituent parts in place. The poetry and its association with St. Valentine, which we can date to Chaucer, then the Valentine Heart, Roses, and Gift Giving, which comes through the Tudors, then the cryptic love notes and cards through the 18th century, and the last piece is the chocolate box, which is mid to late 19th century.
2: And you said earlier that Valentine's Day isn't celebrated all over the world, but it's certainly a big deal in lots of places.
1: Yeah, it has since spread around much of the globe. Some countries in South America, the Middle East and the Far East have subsequently developed Valentine's celebrations. And across Europe and America, it's a pretty widespread phenomenon. And as we always say on Three Ravens, it's lovely to have justifications to celebrate. But what is absolutely undoubtable is that we, silly, sentimental English, came up with these ideas. And of our many cultural innovations... It's one that I can absolutely and definitely get behind. Oh, me
2: too, (laughs) obviously. And now I suppose it's time to pop a bottle of champagne and begin our day of indulgence.
1: Big question, though, Eleanor. Did I justify not telling a story or need I be chased out of town with flaming torches and pitchforks?
2: I think you can just about get away with it, (laughs) but don't let it happen again.
1: Okay, I won't. Sorry, everyone. Still, before we tuck into our piles of Valentine's Day chocolate, hopefully, dear listener, you will enjoy our brand new Dying Arts episode out tomorrow, all about traditional basket and Trug making and if
2: you're a Patreon supporter we also hope you enjoy our Patreon exclusive episode for February all about the white stag in folklore which is out tomorrow as well and
1: that one does have a story (laughs) and if you're not already a Patreon supporter and would like to support the podcast please consider signing up for all sorts of Patreon exclusive goodies at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast
2: otherwise we will be back on Monday with our next county episode all about Staffordshire looking
1: forward to that very much and again happy valentine's day everyone
2: yes happy valentine's day i hope you don't get beaten up by roman guards and beheaded
1: (laughs) speak again tomorrow and in the meantime as our terribly terribly burned cupid flaps off towards his mum's place that way we'll go this way
2: and remember don't whistle till you're out of the woods Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour, and our logo is by Ollie James Dare.
1: The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening.
2: God sent every gentleman, such hounds, such hawks, and such, such, such leanman, with a down dairy, down, 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 dairy, dairy, down. down, down, down